to be a negotiated result to this conflict. Russia is not going to roll over Ukraine. Uh, that's almost certain. To the world of business. 10% doesn't run a company. It's the power of his argument that's going to be more important than his actual vote. This is Balance of Power with David Weston. From Bloomberg World Headquarters in New York to our television and radio audiences worldwide, welcome to Balance of Power. Well, the outrage continues around the world to that evidence of alleged atrocities committed by Russian troops north of Kiev over in Ukraine. And as a result, we have yet further sanctions being imposed, both by the United States and by Europe. To bring us up to speed on it all, we turn out our Washington correspondent, Anne-Marie Hordern, at the White House. So, Anne-Marie, start with U.S. first. Uh, what are we doing in the U.S.? So the United States, what we learned is they're going after the same kind of entities they have in the past. So similar strategy, but some new targets. So really going on full blocking sanctions on Spurbank, which is Russia's biggest bank, as well as Alpha Bank. But David, we should note, similar to the past, they are making in these full blocking sanctions carve outs for the energy sector. And then when it comes to individuals close to President Putin, the United States is going to be sanctioning his two adult children. That would be Katerina and Maria, the two adult children that we know of, but we should know. President Putin has gone to great lengths over the years to really guard them in a lot of secrecy. And then on top of that, there'll be an executive order on a ban of new investment going into Russia. So you could see there's still financial and economic penalties they are putting at the feet of the Kremlin. Emma, you mentioned energy there. What about with Europe? Because we had some new news out of Europe. What about coal? What about oil? What about gas? So when it comes to coal, the Europe plans are to go there to block coal and imports of Russian coal. Now, we should note, David, that on the one hand, this does put a crack in the ceiling of the energy realm that for many said it would be very hard for Russia to do. But Ursula von der Leyen outlined how much Russia makes off of European coal, sending that there. It's about $4 billion this year alone. Our calculation is Russia will bring in more than $320 billion, a third more of what they brought in last year when it comes to commodity sales. So then the big question is, will Europe ever move to block Russian oil and gas? You have two trains of thoughts even coming out. We heard them today. Charles Michel says at some point sooner or later, oil and even gas will have to be on the table. But then you have the likes of Viktor Orban saying... Hungary will never go there, and they're even willing to pay in rubles. Yeah, exactly. I noticed that. That's quite a piece of news there, the possibility. Thank you so much to our Washington correspondent, Anne-Marie Hordern, reporting from the White House. We want to continue on that subject of energy and its role with respect to all of these sanctions being imposed. And for that, we turn to really a true expert in the area. He's Dan Jurgen, vice chairman of S&P Global and the author of The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. Dan, great to have you back with us. Let's pick up on what Anne-Marie was just talking about. First of all, with respect to coal, I, I guess I'm a little surprised it's that big a number coming out of Russia. But give us a sense, can, can Europe replace that coal from other places? And by the way, what's going on with the market for coal? As I understand, there's actually increased demand for coal these days. Yeah, demand for coal has been going up, and coal markets were are tight, which is why actually the energy crisis that preceded uh, uh, Ukraine uh, began with a short tightness, shortages of coal. But uh, Russia is a, is the biggest supplier of coal to Europe, and but that's probably the easiest thing to st to stop and to pull in from other places. 
So, Dan, what about the oil and gas side of it? As I understand, that's much harder potentially for Europe to substitute oil and gas from other sources. What are the prospects for that over the next year to 18 months? David, is, as you said, it is much harder. And that's why oil and gas was really, and energy was really carved out of the sanctions initially. But what started to happen is you've had self-sanctioning. Uh, and we think out of the maybe 4 million barrels a day of oil and product that gets exported to Europe, about half of that has been self-sanctioned, disrupted in some way. The million barrels a day from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserves helps balance uh, some of that out. But I think the pressure is going to grow on oil, although, as you said, uh, Orban will uh, oppose it. But I think given what's happening, uh, the toughest one to deal with is natural gas, because it, it, there's just not that much, although U.S. LNG has been a very welcome addition to uh, European energy supplies. We're all concerned about what this does to Europe and its ability to get access to energy. What does it do to Russia and its position as really a dominant supplier of energy over the years? Well, Russia has been, although Putin once said he didn't like the term, an energy superpower. He liked the money and he liked the political clout that comes from it. I think its days are, are, are ending as an energy superpower because the Europeans have basically said we're done. We don't regard Russia anymore as a reliable supplier. Their, their oil and gas is unwanted. It's going to take time to unwind that. So Russia will continue to be a major producer, but it will be a reduced energy power. And, you know, right now it's making a lot of money because prices are high. But uh, its its market for European gas over the next couple of years is really going to shrink. Uh, is the natural gas situation, I'm getting a question right now as we talk from a, from a viewer, is it very different from natural gas? Because there is no strategic petroleum reserve for na natural gas. Right, exactly. And uh, reserves are gas. Uh, uh, the, the sort of storage is low, and their problem is to build it up for uh, next year. So that's why gas is the biggest problem, and that if you start to have it disrupted, either because people don't want to buy it or Putin says you have to pay in rubles and the Western uh, West Europe's not going to pay him in rubles, then you're going to start see industry shutting down. You'll see prices going up. <clears throat> and we were just uh, looking at that this morning. And what it also does is it means that uh, your the macroeconomic forecast will have to be lowered because economic activity will be lower. So Putin knows that he has leverage, but it is declining leverage over time. And uh, obviously uh, his assumption that the Europeans would just uh, uh, salute uh, uh, conquest of Ukraine uh, has just turned out to be completely wrong because he thought they w would do that because of their dependence on Russian energy. Right now, they want to get out of Russian energy as quickly as they can. As you say, gas is the biggest problem. Oil is a problem, but gas is bigger. Well, well, speaking of oil and gas, but really oil, it's on the agenda on Capitol Hill, as you know well, Dan, today, with those oil executives being summoned in sort of almost to the principal's office and asked to respond to the profits they're making, because they all are making lots of profits. What about this move to perhaps tax windfall profits? Once well, again, we've heard this before. Yes. Well, we've been there before. What they seem to have forgotten is that you had two price collapses and uh, the industry really retrenched, laid off a lot of people. Right now it's making money. It's a cyclical industry. But this is, uh, you know, obviously the Congress people have to respond to their constituents. High gasoline prices are hurting people. But uh, it's, you know, this is the result of basically more than anything else, Putin and what's happening there. And but this is a ritual of American politics, big oil. Uh, I was this morning, I was looking back in the pages of the prize and found that the first hearing on high gasoline prices was 99 years ago in the Senate. And prices went up. And then guess what? They went down. 
but uh, the, the script is very familiar. So, Dan, we always want to ask you, what are your projections at this point for the price of oil going through the rest of the year? At one point, you said you think you're to 120. Do you think we're headed there again? Well, I think, uh, I mean, the, you know, there's always the question, you know, what's going to be the wild card here? Is COVID in China going to really sort of slow down that economy and take demand, reduce demand, which would actually take the pressure off the price? But if not, I think we are going to be in a tight oil market and particularly in a disrupted oil market, which is what makes it more imperative not to have this political antagonism that we have in this country, but we need a kind of close collaboration and cooperation between government and industry, as we've had in previous uh, oil crises going back to 1956 and the Suez crisis, even to World War II. This, this crisis could turn into an emergency. Therefore, managing together on a daily basis is what's going to be really needed to manage the logistics of supply around the world as this continues. How bad is it? I mean, uh, we've been through some energy crises before. Certainly, you and I both remember the 1970s. How does it compare? Uh, obviously, the one people go back to is the 1970s uh, as the most severe. I think this potentially is worse because it involves not only oil, but it involves natural gas, involves coal, and it involves two countries that happen to be the nuclear superpowers. So the risks are as high as they seemed in the 1970s. The risks right now are higher. Okay, Dan, it's always such a pleasure to have you. you with us. That's Dan Jurgen of S&P Global. Coming up here, Fed minutes out in less than two hours from right now. We're going to go over what to expect with Sarah House. She's senior economist from Wells Fargo. This is Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and Radio. This is Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and Radio. I'm David Weston. We want to keep you up to date with news from all around the world. And for that, we go to The First Word with Mark Crumpton. David, thank you. The U.S. Justice Department is charging a Russian businessman with allegedly violating sanctions against the country. At a news conference today, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland had this message for anyone else who is enabling Vladimir Putin's regime. It does not matter how far you sail your yacht. It does not matter how well you conceal your assets. It does not matter how cleverly you write your malware or hide your online activity. The Justice Department will use every available tool to find you, disrupt your plots, and hold you accountable. Attorney General Garland added the United States had seized millions of dollars from an account traced to the Russian tycoon and disrupted a cybercrime operation run by Russia. The U.S. will impose new sanctions on Russia, including penalties on two of its largest banks and on President Putin's adult children. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's wife and daughter will also be sanctioned. It's the latest step in efforts by the U.S. and its allies to crack down on people close to the Russian leader over allegations of atrocities in Ukraine by Russian forces. Russia denies the accusations. A panel of COVID experts is meeting today to discuss how and when to update vaccines for future variants. Until now, the process has been driven by vaccine makers Pfizer and Moderna. 
This meeting of Food and Drug Administration advisors should offer the first hints of a strategy for developing strain-specific boosters, and it probably won't be the last. Many scientists think the vaccines will need to be updated periodically, much like the flu shot. Global News 24 hours a day, on air and on Bloomberg Quick Take, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in over 120 countries. I'm Mark Crumpton. This is Bloomberg. David? Thank you so very much, Mark. Well, the big news, of course, in the markets this week so far has been the bond market, where whatever the bond rally was, it's gone away at the moment, in part in anticipation of what the Fed is likely to do with rates, but also with the balance sheet. To give us a sense of the upcoming FOMC minutes that we're going to have just a short time from now, we welcome now Sarah House. She's senior economist at Wells Fargo. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us. Let's start with those minutes. People, I think, are really fixated on the balance sheet. And we did hear from Lael Brainerd from the Fed just yesterday suggesting they may be really running off that balance sheet faster than we thought. Right. So we saw with the January meeting, the Fed lay out the principles of balance sheet reduction, talking about how the Fed funds rate is still going to be the primary tool. The balance sheet is going to shrink in a predictable manner. And eventually they want to get that composition to primarily be treasuries. But we're really missing some of the some of the details around what that shrinkage might look like. And we saw Powell hint that the, those details could come uh, with the with the meeting minutes from from March, and we saw that reinforced by by Brainerd. So, so give us some sense as an economist of the relative effects on the economy, on financial conditions for that matter, of the runoff of the balance sheet on the one hand and raising rates in the other. Well, I think the Fed has a better grasp on the impact of the Fed funds rate on financial conditions versus versus the balance sheet. But I think they're looking at financial conditions as, as a whole. So obviously, given the balance sheet of, of roughly $9 trillion, that's still very supportive of overall financial conditions. And because of the overall strength of the U.S. economy right now and just that sheer size of the balance sheet, they're really pointing towards drinking it much faster than what we saw over the, the last cycle. So, for example, our expectations uh, heading into the minutes are that eventually we'll see caps of, of up to $100 billion between Treasuries and, and MBS, which is about twice as much as what the caps were in the last cycle, but also the phase-in be faster. So, right now we're penciling in six months versus 12 months, but I think we'll get more clarity coming out of that in the minutes of, of just how much faster that, that uh, roll-off will be. Sarah, as you look at that roll-off, uh, what sort of analysis do you have around the way they roll it off? Because you mentioned they have treasuries and they have the mortgage-backed securities, the MBS, so to speak. It may be quite different, right, if they really want to come out fast, because one could disrupt the mortgage market in a way that I think they have a fair amount of flexibility in just letting the treasuries mature. Right. So, of course, the MBS roll-off is very, very dependent on, on how fast those mortgages are, are paid back. And so, it seems that there's a lot more appetite for eventually selling mortgage-backed securities from, from the portfolio. Now, they're not going to get to that straight away. I think they will let that start to, to just roll off, particularly as those caps get get phased in, but it does stand to be slightly different in terms of that composition where I think they are more eager to shrink that that MBS side of the portfolio more so than Treasuries compared to the 2017-2019 runoff period. So, Sarah, give us a, your take on the yield curve right now. There's an awful lot of discussion of the yield curve. It inverted there on Friday when we get to the news out of jobs. Where is the yield curve right now, and how good an indicator do you think that is of a possible recession? Right. So 
of course, it depends what part of the yield curve you're looking at. So we've seen the twos tens move back positive, um, essentially uninvert from, from what we saw, saw last week. But I think overall, when we step back and we look at the signal coming from the yield curve, it's not as good as, as, as it was historically, in part because those Fed purchases have been, that had had such a big effect on, on yield. So the yield curve has become unduly flat because of those purchases. And so we're not getting the same, the same signal as, as far as a recession from it than we have prior to, to QE. Sarah, economists like you are quick to say yield curve's relevant. It's one point of data we should take a look at, but it's not the only one. As you look at all the data, what are your projections right now about a recession? We had Deutsche Bank come out today, I'm sure you know, and saying they think that we'll have a recession in the United States by the end of next year, 2023. So we think the recession risks are more elevated in the current period than they are in the typical part of an expansion. So we estimate the chance of the economy slipping into recession between now and the end of 2023 at roughly 30%. But I think it's important to not just think of a recession in, in terms of binary terms, but also what happens to, to growth overall. So I, I, we're looking for a significant slowdown in growth. So not necessarily a, a recession, but still notable weakening in activity um, that could be, you know, could be painful for a lot of businesses, even if we don't slip into a technical recession. Yeah, a really good point. Short of recession, you can still have a lot of pain in the economy. But taking the flip side of that as well, not all recessions are created equal. There are some that are deeper and longer, some that are shallower and don't last quite as long. What, if any, can the Fed be doing right now to try to get the latter kind, that is a shallow, quick recession? There are some some positives heading into this period of tightening, and a lot of that comes down to the strength of, of corporate and household balance sheets. And so, I think that does give some wherewithal to withstand somewhat higher rates. Um, but you know, while we're starting at a good place, of course, that that position is going to deteriorate the higher rates go. So already we're seeing the income dynamics in the household sector weakening. We've seen real income decline for seven straight months, and so it's certainly not an easy position for the Fed. And I think a lot of things have to go right for them to wring out inflation without tipping the economy into recession. So we need to see things like the mix of spending um, be better balanced, where it's tampering down things like goods inflation without completely uh, crimping consumer spending. We need to see workers come back into the labor force to help keep labor income rising, but maybe take some of those wage wage pressures off um, that are contributing to inflation right now. I wanted to ask you about the workers specifically, because uh, as you say, we need to wring the inflation out of the economy. I wonder what kind of pain we have to endure to do that. We had Bill Dudley, the former New York Fed president, earlier today on Bloomberg saying, look, we need some pain in the equities, essentially. We have to see this come down more in asset classes. What about an employment? Can we bring out the inflation without increasing unemployment? Well, that's going to be a really tough thing to do if we're if we're actually trying to essentially get um, resources growing faster faster than demand. That includes labor supply. So it's going to be a, a tricky line line to walk. I think there is scope for the labor force participation to improve further. And so that can help tamp down unit labor costs. So that's essentially the inflationary component coming from, from the labor market. But I think the, the fact that the Fed's projections are essentially still showing growth above potential, you know, no real pain in, in the labor market still looks pretty rosy in my view. Okay, Sarah, always a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you very much for your time. That's Sarah House of Wells Fargo. Still to come, Senator Rick Scott of Florida on Ukraine and his state's battle with Disney.
This is Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and Radio. War in Ukraine rages on. President Putin's invasion is brutal. Turn to Bloomberg for up-to-the-minute reporting from around the world and analysis of what it all means to you. The intention here is to increase uh, the pressure on the sanctions front. I think the United States policy is that the sanctions continue uh, until uh, President Putin is no longer there. For continuing coverage from Ukraine and around the world, keep attuned to Bloomberg Television and Radio. This is Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and Radio. I'm David Weston. We're going to check on the markets now, which are moving, uh, particularly the equities, because in part, I think, of what's going on with the bond market. And we have Kriti Gupta here to take us through exactly what the markets are doing. So help us. Yeah, it's a, it's a risk-off day regardless of what asset class you look like. Bonds are selling off, uh, the stock market's selling off, but really you nailed it. It really is all about what's happening in the bond dynamic right now. And it's coming down to a lot of pressure ahead of these FOMC minutes that you just discussed with your previous guest um, at, I believe, 2 o'clock. The, the big focus right now is going to be not just about rate hikes, but about the balance sheet. It comes down to how much of shrinkage in the balance sheet actually translates to an additional essentially 25 basis point cut in terms of the impact that it actually has in addition to potentially putting 50 basis points on the table. So it's that discussion and the lack of clarity around how that shrinkage actually happens that's really spooking the bond market and in turn spooking the stock market. You have the Nasdaq down a whopping 2.7%. And remember, when yields jump by this much, as much as 17 basis points yesterday, as much as 10 basis points earlier in the session today, that margin of the move is really what knocks tech off of its game as opposed to just three or four basis points. So you make a really important point, I think, which is I think we think that the Fed knows what it's doing when raising rates. It's not as clear on the balance sheet. We don't have as much experience with that. Right, because there's two ways that can happen, right? You can very clearly uh, just not reinvest the funds that come on to your balance sheet, or you can actively <laughs> sell bonds on the open market. And that's really what's kind of freaking the markets out right now because – and in some ways, the markets are encouraging the Fed to make the assets, asset prices come back down to earth. And to do that, it means you are able to potentially justify a more violent, uh, for lack of a better term, shrinkage of the balance sheet, which would include selling bonds on the open market. In the meantime, we have a fair amount of news on oil today. We had inventories. And of course, we have that testimony going on on Capitol Hill. The testimony taking getting a lot of attention because we know this is a very <laughs> sore topic when it comes to the debate about whether or not oil companies are as the Biden administration puts it, uh, racketeering profits and, and really holding on to them and not able to serve the consumer. But a lot of what the testimony has, and I'll share a little nugget with you here, is some of these major oil executives, what they're saying is, yeah, we are making record profits in 2021, but they are following uh, some pretty big declines in 2020, which comes back to the core of the issue. Darren Woods, the CEO of ExxonMobil, he came out and said, yeah, we made $23 billion in 2021, but we lost $22 billion in 2020. <laughs> so the core of the issue here really comes down to uh, you're, they're still ramping up from these COVID issues. And on top of that, they're trying to meet these demand. It also takes 12 to 18 months to invest and to ramp up production. So do you make that investment right now? Yeah, and this is far from the first time <clears throat> that we've seen Congress go after oil companies. Thank you so much to Kriti Gupta. Coming up, we're going to talk with Senator Rick Scott about what's next for Ukraine, the direction of his Republican Party, and his state's fight with Disney. That's coming up on Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and on radio.
This is Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and Radio. I'm David Weston. To catch you up on news from all around the world, we're going to go now to Mark Crumpton with the first word. David, thank you. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says Russia hasn't given up its plans to occupy the entire country. President Zelensky addressed the Irish parliament today as some Russian troops pulled back from near Kyiv to focus on eastern Ukraine. Zelensky told the lawmakers that 10 million Ukrainians have been left without shelter as a result of the war. In Peru, President Pedro Castillo lifted a lockdown that he had imposed on Lima in an attempt to curb violent protests against soaring inflation. Many congressional leaders in Peru had urged the president to lift the lockdown, saying the measure restricted fundamental rights. Even as he met with lawmakers, a protest rally near Congress turned violent, with demonstrators battling police who fought back with tear gas. Emmanuel Macron is spending the final week before France's presidential election trying to connect with voters enough through enough campaign stops and media appearances. Polls show the gap between him and far-right leader Marine Le Pen narrowing. President Macron has been criticized for not campaigning enough. The latest surveys show Macron would beat Le Pen by 53% to 47% in a runoff. That gap, based on an average compiled by Bloomberg, has more than halved from a month ago. Some Republican governors in the United States may be getting a midterm campaign boost from the same Biden administration aid they attacked just a year ago. Governors from both sides of the aisle are tapping into $200 billion in pandemic relief from President Biden's American Rescue Plan. Florida's Ron DeSantis, considered a leading 2024 presidential candidate, has repeatedly called it Washington at its worst. But his administration alone has doled out more than $5 billion of that money so far. Global News 24 hours a day, on air and on Bloomberg Quick Take, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in over 120 countries. I'm Mark Crumpton. This is Bloomberg. David? All eyes continue to fasten on Ukraine as the atrocities are documented north of Kyiv. And we know how the Ukrainian people are doing. They're going through a horrible situation, although, in fairness, they are doing much better than people would have expected at this point. So we want to ask now how we're doing in supporting them. And for that, we turn to Senator Rick Scott. He's Republican of Florida and a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. So, Senator, thank you so much for being back with us. How are we, and by we, I mean the United States and our allies, how are we doing in supporting the Ukrainians? Sure. I think the, the one thing that's really important is we all need to make sure we're all calling Putin what he is. He's a war criminal. He needs to be in prison the rest of his life. And we've got to do everything we can to hold Russia accountable through sanctions, of, any, of Putin and anybody around him uh, to make sure that he's held accountable. On, the, on our side, what we've got to do ourselves and our allies, we've got to keep showing up and give Ukraine every lethal weapon we can to make sure they can defeat, not, not to stop, they need to defeat uh, the Russian military and Russia has to, the Russian military needs to be, be walking back into Russia completely demolished. That's what has to happen here. So I'm just still surprised the Biden administration hasn't given the Polish MiGs uh, that uh, the Ukrainian military could use. Uh, and we just got to keep pushing every day to get everything we can to them. And we need to expect our allies to be doing the exact same thing. 
Part of the strategy is to impose really crippling sanctions. People want them to be crippled, at least on Russia. Part of that has to do with oil and gas for Europe. Uh, we've cut it off, but obviously Europe, and particularly Germany, is much more dependent on it. Is there anything we in the United States can do in the short term to try to supply them enough so that they could cut off those supplies? Well, we've got to boost our production. Uh, unfortunately, the Biden administration has it out for our oil and gas industry. Um, you know, it's difficult to get a permit. Uh, they shut down the Keystone Pipeline. We've got to open the Keystone Pipeline. We've got to get the permits as long as it's safe, as long as, it, you know, our, our government agencies do it in a respectful manner uh, to where things can be drilled safely in our country because we want to be independent. We all want to be independent as individuals. Our country has to be. And that way we can help our allies like Europe right now where they make sure they don't long-term stay dependent on, on Russia. Because, you know, if, if Putin can, uh, can defeat Ukraine, he's not going to stop there. Then we're, he's going to be in Poland and other countries, and we're going to be at, at, you know, we're going to have our men and women at war. So we've got to become energy independent so we're not dependent on Russia for anything. Uh, Senator, I want to turn to uh, something you uh, sent out a short time ago, which is the 11-point plan to rescue America, as you put it, a brochure of really setting out 11 points. We don't have time to go through all 11 points, but part of it is fiscal responsibility. And I wonder what we can do in this country to become more fiscally responsible. You just heard the news report about the extent to which all the states were giving a lot of money because of the pandemic relief, including your home state. And we just heard about uh, your uh, governor, DeSantis, deploying a fair amount of that money. Can't blame him. He got the money. Why not spend it? But how, what is your reaction? Did we do the states a favor by distributing that money during the pandemic? No. I mean, what we should, what every every responsible state and local official should do is they should say, "Hey, I'm going to send that money back. Uh, we need to pay down this 30 trillion dollars worth of debt. We can't waste money." Uh, you know, when you individually get money, you don't go waste it. We got to go spend money responsibly. If there's something that we need to do to deal with the COVID crisis, I get it. But just sending money to states that they can spend basically any way they want or to local governments makes no sense. Somebody's going to pay that money back. Whenever government, the federal government spends money, somebody's taxes have to go up to pay for this. I mean, think, think about what's happened in our federal government. In the last 20 years, we've had a 16% increase in our population and a 300% increase in federal spending on an annual basis. That's not sustainable. That's why we have the inflation we have right now. Uh, that's why gas prices are up and food prices are up and housing prices have just skyrocketed. We have got to get control of this. We don't want to have the same problems they're having in other countries where this inflation has got completely out of control. Inflation, obviously, is a very big problem across the country. I think everyone at this point admits to that, recognizes it. I want to come back to another issue in your home state of Florida, and that involves a new statute having to do with the education of young children and exposing them to things having to do with gender or sex. Uh, and obviously, it's a big issue, and it's become a dividing point between, again, your state and Governor DeSantis on the one hand and the Walt Disney Company. I used to work for them, full disclosure. I didn't, wasn't involved in any of this, but I, I used to work for them. I know them. Is this a sensible fight for them to be picking right now with one of the largest employers in the state? You know, it's frustrating because I think, I think all of us would agree that, you know, young children should not be talked about sex in school. Parents should be the ones that talk to their children about sex. So I, I think that, that it's common sense that that's not what our schools should be doing. They should be reading, writing, and arithmetic. At the, at the same time, I think companies have got to really think about what, how, how they're getting involved. They can, you know, they can care about the, the issues, but, I mean, you know, there's a lot of now woke companies that are getting involved in issues here, but, but then they won't do the same thing in communist China. Um, you've got Disney as an example. 
which I think all of us have enjoyed going to Disney in our lifetime, but one of their last movies that they shot in where they have slave labor. Uh, they got in, you know, in Xinjiang, and, and they promote the fact that it was shot there, and that's where the Uyghurs are in prison. So I think, I, look, I'm always appreciative of people. This, we have a right to speak and say whatever we want, but let's be consistent. If we're going to talk about things in America, let's talk about things in communist China also. But I want to come back to that question of, is it the most important issue we have in front of us right now? I mean, we may have our own views about, as parents about how we want our children raised. Is there evidence, actually, that small children are being injured by this? Was there a lot of discussion in the Florida schools about gender for, for, for second graders? There, my understanding is, uh, you know, parents had complained about some of the things that were taught in some of the school districts. Uh, so I think that's why the bill was passed. Uh, so, you know, you know what's frustrating is, is that why can't teachers uh, and our educators focus on reading, writing, and arithmetic uh, and not talk about ideology? And then why can't companies focus on just doing the job for their consumers? So that's what ought to happen in this country. We ought to get back to doing the basics. So let me come back to some of the basics uh, and come back to inflation, which you mentioned is a very big issue. Give us a sense of what you think should be done right now for inflation. Whatever money was appropriated was appropriated, was spent, including your home state, did take the money and spending it. That's sort of water under the bridge. What should be done now? Stop spending. Um, so we shouldn't send more money out. It's not needed. I mean, the COVID crisis is basically over. So let's stop spending money. Let's get back to living within our means. We have, we are, this right now, Biden's budget projects will take the federal debt to $45 trillion, $45 trillion in the next 10 years. I don't know how we're going to pay off the $30 trillion. And what you're, you're already seeing what's happening to interest rates. Think what that's going to do to more mortgage rates and what that's going to do ultimately to housing prices. So we have got to get this under control and everybody's responsible because it's our money. It's not, there's no free money. The government doesn't have it so, some, uh, some business that's making a big profit off of. Their only way they, they get any money is they have to tax us. So this money that's going to get sent out to states, the states ought to say, we don't need the money. Send it back. Send it back and let's pay down the debt. Don't waste the money. That's how we're going to get this inflation under control, by doing things like that. Senator, I'm going to apologize to you because I never do this, but I had a viewer write in a question, actually, and I want to sure. ask it on behalf of the viewer. And it goes back to Disney, I'm afraid, so I'm doubling back on you. I apologize. Sure. Uh, as you and I both know, uh, the Disney theme park down in Orlando has special status, uh, essentially almost a quasi-governmental entity. Uh, and there have been good reasons for that. It's gotten a lot of money for the state. Should that be under review? You know, when I was governor, it never was an issue. Um, I think Disney has been a responsible corporate citizen. I don't understand why they're now are getting involved in some of these uh, political issues. But, but uh, so I know that I know that my understanding is the legislature is going to look at it now. But my my experience with Disney had been positive. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I really appreciate your indulgence on that. That is Senator Rick Scott. He's Republican of Florida. Always good to have you with us, Senator. Coming up, we go to the Space Symposium in Colorado Springs for an update on a very different kind of space race with David Ray of SAIC. This is Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and Radio.
This is Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and Radio. I'm David Weston. The 37th Space Symposium is going on right now in Colorado Springs, where, as I understand it, a lot of people involved in space get together and compare notes. We're going to go to the Space Symposium right now, and Mr. David Ray, he's Senior Vice President of the Space Business Unit at SAIC. So, David, thank you so much for being with us. First of all, tell us what you all are doing out there. First, thank you for having me, and I, and I really uh, am enjoying being here. Uh, we're at the Space Symposium. It's an annual event every year where we have the uh, largest community of space professionals from the U.S. military and DOD and federal civil agencies, as well as international partners and large companies as well as small companies, really moving the strategic agenda forward and how we're going to make advancements both in space exploration uh, as well as space as a part of the, the military and DOD ecosystem. So it's very exciting times for us. When you talk about that strategic vision going forward, certainly over my lifetime, it's changed a lot. It used to be all government in the United States, all government. And now we see so much private. We see SpaceX launches. We cover them all the time right here on Bloomberg. A lot of privatization of space. What is What are the biggest developments we're seeing right now with respect to space? I think you're seeing three main pillars that are starting to uh, to merge and integrate. Uh, the first is how space plays its role in the, the DOD and military ecosystem, how it also from a federal civil standpoint uh, with NASA uh, drives the acceleration of space exploration. The second pillar is focused on commercial satellite operators. So think of uh, communication satellites that make uh, the digital economy work, that increase uh, and enable our ability uh, around internet and TV. And then the third piece, which is which is newer than the first two, is really the notion of space travel. All those are integrated, and, and we have to really be able to go build an infrastructure and understand how we're going to manage not only the traffic from a from a data perspective, but also the assets that live in space so that we can do all three efficiently and effective for our partners. Well, let's talk about the stuff that's up there in space, because this is one thing that really grabbed me as I was reading for this, uh, and you've been involved in this. How do we keep track of everything that's up there? I see 5,600 payloads, 18,000 objects, and 20,000 bits of debris. You've got something called Space Track to sort of keep track of it all. Mr. Ray, can you hear me? Absolutely. Uh, yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yep. Absolutely. Uh, there's a continuum of, of space traffic management. Uh, some call it a space domain awareness. And the first step is knowing what's out there. Spacetrack.org is, is, a, is a system that we use where as commercial companies and government entities uh, launch things and objects into space, they register them with our, with our uh, system so that we at least know what's there. Uh, that is the first step in really being able to have effective space traffic management. I will say that's just the first piece. The, the pieces that we're moving towards now are also understanding how fast they're moving, uh, how big they are, and then how do we navigate through uh, that debris as we start to launch uh, more satellites, as we start to launch humans into space, when you think about space leisure uh, travel, and also as we launch satellites uh, to, to increase communications worldwide. Um, just a, a point of note, from 1999 to 2019, uh, the, the International Space Station had to maneuver about 25 times uh, to, to, avoid, to avoid debris in space. So that's, that's a little more than two times a year. In 2020 alone, it had to maneuver three. So we're expecting to see that increase because the amount of objects in space are going to increase. So it's becoming more imperative now that we have to understand what's up there, 
how we manage it and how we navigate it so that we can be safe and advance our agenda uh, with respect to space exploration. I have a very basic understanding of this, but you have satellites, you have space stations, things like that, things you want up there. It seems there's an awful lot of things called debris or, or failed satellites and things. Is there, are there any plans to go up and clean up part of space? Absolutely, you know, just like uh, here uh, on Earth when you know, when we're driving down the street, we have to build our roads, we have to, to paint our roads, we have to have gas stations so that we can continue to move our cars down the road. We have to have maintenance facilities to be able to make sure that they're, they're up and running. We have to build that infrastructure in space. Uh, there are uh, efforts underway to look at and understand how we can refuel satellites in space, because oftentimes uh, satellites just stay up once they run out of gas, and so they don't have any more useful life after a certain time. We want to be able to reuse uh, assets. And so really building the highways and byways in space, just like we have in the air with aircraft, just like we have on the road with cars, are really going to fuel you know, how we effectively manage it and how we effectively get the best and, uh, and longstanding endurance out of the assets that we put up there. Okay, really appreciate you being with us today, Mr. Ray. That's David Ray, Senior Vice President of the Space Business Unit at SAIC. Coming up, we've got a hot primary race for the Republican nomination for Senate out in Pennsylvania, and one of the candidates, somebody well-known to Bloomberg, the former head of Bridgewater. We're going to talk about Dave McCormick next. This is Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and on radio. Balance of Power on Bloomberg Television and Radio. I'm David Weston. There's a barn burner of a primary building for the Republican nomination in the Pennsylvania Senate race with several candidates and two with particularly strong name recognition. Mehmet Oz, strong name recognition with the afternoon TV viewing public, and Dave McCormick, name recognition with, let's be frank, Bloomberg audience because he used to run Bridgewater. Joshua Green, national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek, has written a big take on McCormick, and we welcome him now. So, Josh, terrific piece of reportage here. So give us uh, your take on what Dave McCormick is doing to try to get that nomination. Well, basically, I think this is the most interesting and important Senate race in the country because you have Dave McCormick, the former CEO of Bridgewater, uh, world's biggest hedge fund, running against TV personality Dr. Oz. Uh, so I went and embedded with both of them for a little while campaigning. And what's striking to people about David McCormick is that he has transformed almost overnight uh, from a kind of Davos-friendly Wall Street-type Republican to, uh, you know, anti-immigration, Trump acolyte, uh, MAGA figure. Uh, it's been a quicker and more rapid transition uh, politically than anything I've ever seen before. Uh, but the upshot is that it's winning and that both candidates are are running this kind of America first race because they're trying to tout their allegiance to Donald Trump. And that really is still the currency that Republican politicians need to have in a Republican primary. So, so Josh, I just let me ask you about the transformation part of it, uh, because uh, full disclosure, your, your piece, which is very compelling, starts with an event that I was at. It was celebrating Dave McCormick's marriage to uh, Dina Powell of Goldman Sachs and Ray Dalio gave a speech. I was there. And a lot of people were. Uh, but I've known Dave for a while uh, and I, it's, I've never had any illusion that he's not a conservative. I, I mean, he, this was not some liberal that's moved all the way over. I'm just not sure he really addressed a lot of those issues before because he wasn't called upon to. 
Yeah, well, you know, in, in speaking to his former Bridgewater colleagues, I think the shock was more stylistic. Not that they were surprised that he was a Republican. Of course, the CEO of a big hedge fund is likely to be a Republican. Uh, but he transformed so quickly. I describe it as uh, Clark Kent in a phone booth uh, from wearing a suit to wearing camouflage in railing against uh, woke liberalism. Um, this is a guy that won a, a, a diversity and inclusion award at Bridgewater just last fall. Um, the real thing that got to me, though, is that uh, uh, McCormick has become sort of the favorite of Breitbart News, the notorious right-wing website. I'm sure you remember, David, five years ago, Robert Mercer got basically yeah. drummed out of Renaissance technology for his associations with Breitbart. Uh, but one of the interesting things is that McCormick really hasn't. Nobody on Wall Street has batted an eye. So I think that goes a long way toward explaining or showing how much the business world has embraced Trump and Trumpism. And the fact that a guy is credentialed and serious as McCormick uh, you know, is, is willing to kind of bend the knee to Trump in this way, shows that he remains the dominant figure in the Republican Party. Well, let me just ask about that, bending the knee to Trump. How much of this is bending the knee, as you put it, to the person of Donald J. Trump, and how much of it is accepting some of Trump's positions? Because a lot of people I talk to on Wall Street think uh, Trump had some issues very much right uh, with respect to China. By the way, with respect to taking natural gas for uh, Germany from uh, Nord Stream 2, that you can divorce, can't you, the person of Trump from some of the positions he took? Uh, possibly, yeah. I mean, I think the interesting thing with McCormick, as you know, I mean, Bridgewater and Ray Dalio are famous for their investments uh, in China. Uh, and that's something that McCormick, as CEO, you know, oversaw for years. One of, the, one of the rapid transformation points I was talking about in the piece is that almost overnight, uh, he reinvented himself as this anti-China figure uh, because, again, as you said, that's, that's something that appeals to Donald Trump and Donald Trump voters. And I think those are the people he's trying to win over uh, as he competes with Dr. Oz. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating race. As I say, two fairly charismatic people with a lot of name recognition. It's going to be a really great race to follow. Thank you so much for being with us, Josh. Great piece, as I said. He's national correspondent for Bloomberg Businessweek. Check out the Balance of Power on new, Bloom, uh, newsletter on the terminal and online. Coming up, Balance of Power continues on Bloomberg Radio. In our second hour, we're going to talk to Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases. We're going to ask him, among other things, do we need that for booster shot if we already have three and what's coming up in the fall this is balance of power on bloomberg television and radio Talk to you guys. Um, we still have no. We still have nothing. It's yeah, over. It's, we lost. That's a good intro. <laughs> and let's get into it. <laughs> okay. 
Welcome back to Under Review. Lots has happened since we've last talked to you, so we are going to dive into some of that tournament play, round of 16, 8, that Final Four and National Championship game. But before we get to it, I'm Bremon. And I'm Grant Mangle. Let's get into it. Although it feels like ages ago, um, that round of 16 game was not too long ago facing Indiana and the Huskies got away pretty simple for a March Madness game. Then they moved on to the much tougher competitor that was NC State who won off of Notre Dame with Reina Perez with the steal and you could tell by that game that neither team wanted to go home an absolute double overtime thriller, and that's what got us into that Final Four National Championship. Sadly, we lost a key element to our team right before heading to Minnesota, and that was Dorka Juhas as she got injured on her wrist during the NC State game. How do you think this kind of impacted the team going into Minnesota in any of those games? I mean, before that even, it clearly impacted them during the NC State game. UConn was up nine points at the time when Dorco, or seven or nine at the time when Dorco went down, and you could see the team was visibly shaken right there. I mean, the team was coming over to the bench crying, and it was a pretty nasty, gruesome kind of, you know, dislocation, fracture, injury. And... So that made that game a lot more difficult, you know, double overtime then, all that stuff happened. But they get through it, and then going into Minnesota, you're missing your, your sixth man, your, your big off the bench, and that just makes it a lot harder on us when we've got Aaliyah and Olivia Nelson-Odota, who tend to get into foul trouble more often than not, and when you need that third big to be able to come in and not have it, it kind of just changes how you play the game completely. I think that Dorky Yuha's injury was just absolutely heartbreaking especially at that point in time she's worked all year she had to deal with a slight injury during the year she transferred here she kind of found her way in super quickly and it's just tough to have to miss out on championship weekend but some good came out of it as she announced that she was coming back and she's going to be essential for next year but I do agree with the fact that it did play a large role in that big rotation because Olivia and Aaliyah are the big foulers, and we saw it in a lot of the games, especially going into those Stanford and South Carolina games. Um, so after they escaped NC State, um, they faced Stanford. I think that NC State game kind of showed what our team could do, and I think it kind of scared those other Final Four teams um, because either of those teams really left it all on the court and to be able to work that hard, go into that many overtimes, and just the shot for shot for shot for shot, it really showed the high level that you can play at and how competitive our team was. So I think going off of that high into the tournament was good. And then we got into that Stanford game. Any initial thoughts? Uh, that was an uh, absolute war between us and Stanford. You know, Gino and Tara, two of the best coaches ever to do it. Uh, they, they don't love each other, but they got great respect for each other. They know the ins and out of each other's teams and how they like to play. So it was always going to be a close game coming in. You know, Stanford, a number one overall seed defending champion. Us, a number two seed looking to get back to the glory. 
it never really felt like a game that UConn should lose. It felt like they were in control from the start, and although it never really got to double digits or anything like that, it was always close, always tight, but to me, it never felt in doubt, and UConn was the better team on the court that night and overall, I believe. I completely agree. Um, I think that Stanford's just a very similar team to us in their way of play and who they have. They're guard heavy. They got the Hall sisters, you got Healy Jones, and then you got Cameron Brink down low, which is very similar to our own Olivia Nelson Adota. So they definitely brought an equal amount of competition, but they just weren't on their mark as they have been in, per se, last year, their championship game. And I think that we really brought a lot of intensity and a good amount of play, especially Avina Westbrook, three after three. When Avina starts going, you just can't stop her. You remember that early um, stretch she had in the South Carolina first game this year. Um, she can be electric, and she really does change momentum on the court. Absolutely. I mean, when she's on, like you said, she's on, and she, she stepped onto the court and looked confident and like the Vina Westbrook that we knew she could be coming into the season, what we saw last season, all of that. She really was a spark that she helped us not only get the lead early, but kind of grow it eventually and to make it a six-point game, a seven-point game, and really give us a little bit of breathing room when that was definitely something we needed. Everyone did pretty well, too. Um, Paige Easy, the, we had so many good contributions that game that it didn't have me that fearful going into our second matchup with South Carolina, although South Carolina escaped Louisville pretty easily for a March Madness game, so it didn't really show what the result of our second matchup could be, especially with it having been canceled in January. It was the game everyone wanted, so there was a lot of anticipation for it, and then we entered a national championship. Any initial thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, the, the big thing that sticks out to me is the first quarter. You get down 22-8 to eight at the end of the first. You give yourself a 14-point hole against who is the best team in the country all year long. And, yeah, there was a handful of times where we cut it back down to six. We cut it back down to five. Stuff like that happened. But you spend so much energy getting just that close that when they get a little burst, it just pushes you back out. And you just can't get over that hump. And you can't, you can't beat yourself against a good team like that getting absolutely dominated on the glass and then just turning the ball over more than 20 times. Those things just aren't a recipe to win, especially when you're going up against the best competition in the country. And not to mention, we couldn't we couldn't make a three. And that's just, that's what it came down to. We couldn't shoot and we couldn't rebound. And that's why we lost by 15. We were down by just enough that it wasn't able to get competitive to a point where we thought we could win. Even in those third and fourth quarters, you kind of saw it on our players. They were kind of like, what can we do at this point? They were almost losing hope. They wanted to win that game. It just didn't match up how it should have. Kristen Williams, a usual extremely dominant tournament player, had not a lot of points. And then we kind of saw a couple surprises. Him subbing Amari DeBarian in the first half. Um, personally, I thought it was a great move. Um, definitely threw Dawn Staley as she... <laughs> She might have not had that in her scouting report. And then throwing Caroline Ducharme in there for some extended minutes, which I thought was a great idea because she knows how to step up in those times. Um, obviously, we weren't able to pull away a win, but I think that she contributed a lot, although she did foul out. She stepped up against big competition, and she wasn't in during that first South Carolina game. Yeah, the, the Amari DeBerry uh, entrance into the game definitely shocked me a little bit, but that, that's a product of Dorka not being healthy. If we have Dorka, those are her minutes, and I mean, she gets more than just the two or three minutes that Amari played, and she would have a, a, 
at this point, a better impact than Amari did, too. I mean, when Dorka went out, she was playing, like Gino said, that was her best stretch of the year right there, right? In that NC State game, she looked terrific. And I think we really could have used her against Aliyah Boston down low, especially when we get out-rebounded how we did. And then Caroline, yeah, it was a great decision to put her in, I thought. I mean, really spaced the court out, and we know she can score. And when we were, when we were struggling to score, why not throw that in there? Someone who can hit threes backdoor cuts get down in the lane and have tough finishes inside i thought it was a really good move and she ended up with what seven nine points herself yeah. and uh, one of the leading scores on her team in the game so it was, it was really nice to see her get back to herself a little bit and as well as not having Kristen really there we didn't have easy had food poisoning the most unlucky thing to get before the national championship and they said um liv was even dealing with her hip and then avina rolls her ankle mid-game honestly though I couldn't attribute all those things to the reason we had that loss as our teams dealt with adversity after adversity so we know how to power through those things and just not enough people were on that night and South Carolina was on the just a well-oiled machine Destiny Henderson dropping 26 points Leah Boston barely were fouling so it was just a recipe for success for them yeah I mean uh, they they were just they were the better team on that night. And like you said, even if AZ doesn't have food poisoning, lives at 100% on that night, I don't know if we still beat them at that point, honestly. Sure, AZ can get hot from three and totally change the game, but that's, I, it's just they, they were the better team that night. They deserve the national championship. I think that that game could play out so many different ways, and it will for the next couple of years. And um, I think it's tough that it had to end like that because that's the thing with March Madness. Only one team ends up happy. But if you kind of look back at our entire season and see that accomplishment, I think that is very important to recognize out of this team. Um, we've mentioned adversity time and time again, but it is truly impressive how much they've been through and how much each of them individually improved. And we made it further than we did last year. And I think that's an accomplishment in ourself. I know Paige had that quote that was heartbreaking. That was at UConn, it's national championship or nothing. And although that is the mentality and they have these stewy reputation to live up to, I think that they should be proud of how much they did accomplish this year. Yeah, going into the season, it definitely was national championship or bust. I mean, that's the view that this program always has. But once you start to see how the season plays out, all the injuries, the COVID, everything that this team faced, no, this was definitely a success of a season. Uh, they they really left it all out there, getting to the Final Four, 14th straight year, the, the double overtime thrilling win there, that was incredible by itself, beating the defending champions in Stanford to get to the national title game, another awesome win for the program. They definitely shouldn't be hanging their heads and feel disappointed, especially the seniors. They had great careers here. I, th yes, they didn't get to their ultimate end goal, but they left the program in good hands, and uh, it's still just a bright future for this team. We are losing Kristen, Olivia, and Davina very soon as the WNBA draft is Monday. They do not get a break at all, but they are such key contributions to this team. It's really upsetting to see them go, and it, my heart does break for them as they do deserve a national championship, and it's tough because Winning a college national championship is so different than a WNBA championship. And it's just, they have to move on so quickly. But I really do think they should be proud of all they accomplished here. And moving on to next year, we have new people. Aina Patterson, Azuna Brady. And honestly, I think we could get someone from the transfer portal. Yeah, that's the way basketball is trending now. 
that it's transfers are people are unhappy with they don't get playing time. We saw it happen to our team this year. Sailor and Mir both left mid-season, which you don't see that too much. But there's plenty of people in the portal, plenty of new faces to bring into the program to help us win a championship. And most people still want to come play at UConn. It's a great program, great facilities. They're going to want to be a part of this. And going into next year, not only the, the new recruits, but we've got Amari staying on campus over the summer trying to improve her game. We'll have AZ, a full offseason healthy, trying to you know get her game up to her standard. Nika, we're going to need to see her try to push that offensive game forward a little bit more next year. Paige year three, I mean, it's going to be a very exciting time to be uh, a UConn Husky fan. It's crazy these sophomores felt like freshmen yesterday and they're going to be the upperclassmen mm -hmm. of next year. But um, I think with the lineup we have, I would like to see a transfer that's a forward, someone big, someone big down low. It's something we always need. Um, I've heard a couple names thrown around a lot from Maryland, but um, I'd be interested to see who we get. I love Dorka now. And I think that she wasn't someone that everyone had on their list, but Gina really finds great people and who we really need to make this team better. But yeah, I'm hopeful looking into next year and I'm pretty satisfied with how this year went. Yeah, I mean, like you said, when you find Dorka, that's, that's credit to the coaching staff and the scouting department to really do, do their due diligence and find who's going to fit this team and what role they can play. And I think that they can go replicate that again and find a key contributor for next year. So the question I really had on my mind is with such a strange, unpredictable season, looking back at maybe our first episode or even before the season started, what do you think would be the most surprising thing about this season that you've come to learn that you wouldn't have believed then? Um, for me, I think it's Caroline Ducharme. I, I did have her as my freshman to watch out for coming into the season on the women's basketball preview, but I never imagined that she would come into a starting role and be the team's leading scorer for a handful of games this year. She really carried us through that middle stretch when we only had five, six, seven players available. She held the team together, and the reason we were a two seed and, and had a chance to play in Bridgeport is because of her, and I never would have guessed that coming into the season. She was definitely under the radar. She said it multiple times herself, but I think we can never forget how much Caroline did for us in those times that we were at our lowest. She stepped up more than you could ever imagine, and that's just a notable effort that will definitely impact how she does in the coming years. We could see it in that Big East Award being named second team as a freshman. It's just really impressive, and I know she hasn't gotten those minutes in the past four to five games, but she definitely should not forget about that mid-season stretch. Personally, I don't think Nika Mule's performance surprised me, but I think it surprised many. Um, there were comments before saying maybe Nika will transfer, maybe Nika won't get a lot of minutes, but Nika has a very important quality that's needed on the court. She changes the pace of the game, winning Big East Defensive Player of the Year. She just brings something that not a lot of other people do. I think Caroline almost has a similar energy. They're just very gritty. They get in there, and I'm just really proud with how Nika did this year. Yeah, she definitely has a role on this team, and not only does she know what it is, she embraces it. She, she loves the role that she's in. I think that it's... It's very crucial, like you said, to this team. She's the motor. She's the heart. Uh, it's something that we're going to need a little more of next year, a little more toughness, I think, too. Yeah, I think there's a lot to come next year. A lot of these players we didn't even get to see that much out of age, only a couple games before the tournament. And then AZ only came back around, like, the DePaul game. So I think that once these players get a full season in, it's going to be unstoppable. But congratulations to South Carolina for the national championship win. 
and I'm excited for ours next year. But sadly, Grant will not be here as he is a graduating senior. So to all our under review fans, I know you're pretty upset that it might just be me, but um, I'll definitely see you next year. Um, it's been a great season, so glad to be a part of it. Um, proud of the entire team and proud of the work we've done here at UCTV. So um, enjoy the off season, take a break from all that basketball. Um, but until the next time, I'm Bremon. And I'm Grant Mangle. Thanks for watching. This is the FCB Radio Network, home of the best personalities and where real talk lives. Online at FCBradio.com. FCB. It's your man, Jeff Brown, and we have tuned in. You have tuned in to another excited episode of the Jeff Brown Show, and you already know what time it is. Listen, we getting ready to get into some hot topics, and we have had a phenomenal, I mean, this month, last month, uh, well, let me say last month, I know we're in April now, but man, we had a phenomenal, we had a phenomenal slew of guests uh, last month and the month before that. I mean, it's just, we just been on a roll. Um, next week, we got... Um, because this is a political season, we got um, Mr. Lee Weingart, who is the candidate, Republican candidate for Cuyahoga County uh, eg Executive. I'm telling you, he's got uh, some, some great gems he's going to be dropping on the show next week, so make sure you guys tune in. But I got to introduce my partner in crime, my man, Reverend Do Wrong himself, uh, Mr. Garvey <laughs> O'Marrow, uh, handling his business over there. We call him, a.k.a. Mr. Liberty. Uh, he definitely... Uh, you know, is proud of his alma mater, so we appreciate yes, that. Sir. Yeah, you, you know, yes, we know yes, what sir. they do over yes, there, I too. Ah, uh, whatever. The fall well, uh, they kicking it over there, man. <laughs> whatever. I, I am proud of my alma mater, but I'm not uh, Reverend Do Wrong, I'm not as uh, doing wrong like the people we about to talk about. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, first of all, let me just talk about the Grammys real quick. Big shout out to a lot of the winners of the Grammys. I'm telling you, man. Um, I thought, uh, you know, it was a good look, you know, good to see some diversity um, at the Grammys. I don't know if you toned in or not, but, man, it was a lot of wars headed out. Uh, 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 Silk Sonic, they did their thing as well. Okay. Um, um, I mean, hey, they won the best song, best album of the year, I believe. Um, 
And um, they just killed it, man. I mean, uh, Bruno Mars. I mean, he, he, he's an exceptional talent within himself. And you know what? I'm gonna tell you. Who, I'm gonna tell you at the Grammys, man. Who I was really, really impressed with, man. Who I, who I've become to be thoroughly impressed with now, man. For real. And I couldn't really get with this artist, but over time they've grown on me. And I think because of the growth that they're showing in their artistry, is Lady Gaga. Mm. Mm. Yeah. She's very the, the, talented. Like she people yeah. people wouldn't have expected this when she first came out. But like she Yeah, because she came out, man. I ain't know I man, I thought she was mad. Woo, I, I thought about all kind of uh evil things when I seen that woman. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Not saying that she was evil person, but she was kind of like I don't know, I want to say demonic, but it was just kind of weird, man. You know, when she came out, she came out. Oh man, it was like, Ugh. yeah. But now she she has a, she has a lot of range. Yeah. She has a she has man. A listen, man, she's elegant. She has this elegant feel to herself, and she connected with Tony Bennett, and you know, and doing those duets with him. And you know, Tony Bennett, you know, is one of my favorite, you know, jazz singers. Uh, him and Frank Sinatra, classic. You know, oh man, you know what I'm saying? Um, my guy, um. Martin, uh, Dean Martin, you know, I mean, just amazing, man. So uh, for her to be able to really transcend into that and nail it and perform it. And, you know, now she's doing records with a lot of the, lot of the songs and duets with Tony Bennett. It's just, it's just, it's just dope, man. How she's really been able to adapt, readapt and just change her brand. And guess what? The people that followed her in the beginning, they're fo- she's introduced a lot of those young, that generation that was following her to, to, this, to like Tony Bennett and yeah. to Tony Bennett. And now, yeah. you know, you look at that Frank Sinatra, old blue eyes. It's like, man, this woman has mm-hmm. really, I'm going to tell you another man. Nas killed it yesterday too, man. I was very impressed with Nas. Uh, you, he's you know in, what, he's in my top five, dead or alive. Hey, man, you got my favorite rapper. Said, man, you cannot talk about greatest hip hop artists without having Nas in that in that top no, five, no. man. You no, know, no, he's in my top uh, five. You know, and some will argue he might be on the same level as Jay Z. They might be equal. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? I, 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 I kind of. I know, got. I got him. I got him ahead of 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 Jay. Mine is Ooh. my top four. I'm gonna tell you my top four. Now and then, I, I want to know your top four. My top okay, four talk to is, Pac, is Pac, Big, Nas, and Jay. Pac, Big, Nas, and Jay. Yep. Uh, okay. I got to go with Pac. I'm going to go with Jay-Z. I'm going to go with okay. Big. And I'm going to go with Nas. Number okay. four. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to go with that, man. Yeah, that's where I'm at with that. If I'm... T- if I'm gonna do my starting five and my fifth, I'm gonna be honest with you, man. I, if I gotta go with a number five on that, uh, I'm talking about someone who transcended. I'm gonna go with Master P. Mm. Let, let me I'm tell a, you why. I'm a let me cube tell you guy. Why. I got I, I got Ice Cube in my number five. Let me say why I go with Master P. When he came out in '99. I'm talking about that no limit soldier, all of that. He brought all, he brought that southern, dirty south, mm-hmm. gangsta, all that man. It changed the whole culture. 
Mm-hmm. So I gotta put him up there. You know what I'm saying? And, and, here's, and I'm putting him up there again because he changed the whole culture. He changed the business too. He, he, he really did. The business. He really did. You know, did. he was one of the first rappers to go play NBA ball. He was, you know, he was one of the first rappers to do a movie. You know what I'm saying? Like out of yeah. his own pocket, though. You yep. know what I'm saying? Um, so, label, so he, clothes, he, had, he had his kid, his own clothes, his own label. Yeah. So he, so yeah. he actually showed that. us. He actually showed black people how to own your own stuff, your own yeah. brand, how to brand no yourself. Doubt. You know what I'm saying? You know, no but I definitely agree at, with that. I couldn't when you look at I, when you look I couldn't at put Jay, him nowhere. If, yeah. if we're talking business, I agree with that. I, if we're talking music, I couldn't put him nowhere near my top five. Well, no, we just only reason I'm saying only, only reason but I'm business, that, I agree. Only reason I'm saying that is because he was able to. The music was the brand, and yeah, the, the, and true. the brand was an extension of the music. When we look at when we look at artists, when we look at an artist in this in their entirety, right? You're looking at presentation, appearance, stage yeah. presence, right? A lyrical composition, right? You're looking at all these different things. You know, th- th- this is what makes an artist, right? Right. He had that, but it was he was he was ghetto, but <laughs> no, listen, he, he was ghetto, which that's where I'm from. I'm from the hood, so I get it. But he was able to brand the hood. Listen, yeah. it transcended. He, well, and I, I give you that. And I mean, look, I'm from the hood, too. And I respect his hustle. I just didn't like his bars, man. I didn't like it. was only a handful of songs. Listen, that I, it wasn't that his I bars. It, nobody was impressed with the bars. They was impressed <laughs> with the hook. OK, yeah, hook. The hook is what oh, made yeah. No Limit. Now, I tell you, though, Body Body was the truth. When body Listen, body came out, that's what I'm trying to tell you. Yeah, body body was raw. Body that's body what I'm trying to tell you, man. Like when you think about, that's what I'm saying. So the reason I put him in the top five is because even though he was not as lyrically strong as the my top four, mm-hmm. he made up with that with being able to brand the hood. I can feel and that, and it was okay to be a part of the hood. I can. You feel get that. money. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's okay to notice, you know, you take a risk by selling dope or whatever you did, but this is what people was doing. And, mm-hmm. and 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 it was embraced not just by black, not by the black culture, but it was embraced by uh by everybody, uh, white, yeah. By everybody, whites, just Latinos. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So everybody embraced that culture back then, man. I get that. Yeah, so it, it, it you know it's it's a lot to really dig into, man. And and then you know, uh I gotta say this, man, before we close hot top. I don't know what the hell is going on in DC, but let me say this. <laughs> hey, we got set it up because we got two minutes left. So you know we're gonna have to come back and talk some more about this. But go ahead and set it up. <laughs> I don't know what the hell is going on in DC. And I wanna I wanna preface what I'm about to say like this. I do not want any Republican blaming Democrats for what <laughs> we're getting ready to talk about too. It has nothing to do with it. I promise you, man. If I hear one Republican blaming Democrat, I'm coming for you, okay? Because this, what I'm about to talk about, what we're getting ready to talk about is a disgrace. It's a shame before God of what's going on 
in the urban community, in the urban America, in our nation's capital. I got to talk about it. And, and I want to say something. Also, Darvio, God forbid, if you ever go, I promise you, I will not do to you what they did <laughs> to this. And I, and I got you. I agree. I, I, same way, brother. You, I ain't going to let you go out like that. <laughs> yeah, man. I, listen, listen. Make sure you guys go subscribe right now to the uh, Jeff Brown Show on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast at. Listen, we got to go pay some bills. I got to talk to y'all about what's going on in D.C. after this commercial break. We'll be right back. These days, it seems like everybody's talking, but no one is actually listening to the things they're saying. Critical thinking isn't dead, but it's definitely low on oxygen. Join me, Kira Davis, on Just Listen to Yourself every week as we reason through issues big and small, critique our own ideas, and learn to draw our talking points all the way out to their logical conclusions. Subscribe to Just Listen to Yourself with Kira Davis, an FCB radio podcast on Apple, on Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts this is the jeff brown show and we're back and we're back and y'all also want to make sure you guys tune in next tuesday the 12th myself along with coco brown actress comedian is launching our new ig live uh show called wtf what the f you say so we're going to be talking about (laughs) everything so darby you know you got to get on there Come out at us on IG as well. It's going to be dope. We're going to have some celebrity friends come on, some guests come on. Even you, you're going to be, uh, if you are told them, we're going to bring you on. We're going to have a good time talking about everything. No holds bar, nothing's off limits. So make sure you guys go follow my page at Official Jeff Brown Show page right now on IG or go follow and go follow Coco Brown at Coco uh, Brown Funny Mama. One Funny funny Mama. One, one, yeah, one funny mama. Say it again, Darvio. Coco Brown, one funny mama. Yeah, go follow her right now on IG. And matter of fact, make sure you guys go follow all of the FCB uh, network right now. My man, uh, King Pitt, uh, drop your IG handle, bro. Uh, you can follow me at D the Kingpin. That's D T H E K I N G P I N. That's Instagram, Twitter, everywhere. That's right. That's right. There you have it, man. So listen. Uh, I told y'all as we ended the last segment, you know, our last talk segment um, about some, some some troubling things that are going on with dead people in D.C. Lord have mercy. You know, I remember when, you know, when a person died, you know, we just recently had at my church, Darvio, uh, Mother Watkins, shout out to the Watkins family. Uh, she was the widow of Bishop Watkins, who my spiritual father, Bishop J. Delano Ellis, succeeded. Um, oh, wow. When he, when he passed, his wife stayed with the church. She actually outlived both her husband and Bishop Ellis. She died last week. So big shout out uh, to the Watkins family uh, and that matriarch there. Um, but when you talk about die, death or somebody dies, okay? Um, you normally take a somber approach because some people psychologically cannot handle a dead body, someone just laying there in a casket, right? Um, some people are, are, are not 
comfortable talking about death because death is unknown. Now, as far as those that are saved and born again, have Christ in their heart, you know, they their faith uh, is the belief that there's life after this eternal and that's an eternal place for them with the Lord, right? And and I'm not here to preach, but I'm just really here to give a somber introduction when it's when we talk about death. Because I normally don't talk about this, but I gotta talk about it because it seems like urban nights is taking the somberness out of death. You know, when somebody dies, brings families together, families that's been broken up, uh, divided, mm-hmm. you know, uh, people that haven't talked in 20, 30 years, they start talking again. You know, death makes you reflect on your own personal life. You know, do you have your business in order? Well, not this group of people. In Washington, D.C., a young rapper, a uh, um, Past his name was Darby. They called him. Hold on, I got the article right. Gunu. Gunu. Yep. Gunu. Uh-huh. God rest his soul. But Gunu was on display like no other at the club. So all he all he needed was some. 1800 <laughs> and a bottle of water. Oh and my god, definitely needed the water, right? So, let me read, let me read this real quick for people who don't know. So, this yeah. is from the New York, this is from the New York Post. Washington, D.C.'s Bliss Nightclub has apologized over an appalling spectacle in which the body of slain rapper Gunu was reportedly displayed on their stage at his own funeral. The memorial place took place, the memorial service took place Sunday weeks after the rapper was shot dead at 24 years old. Our deepest condolences to Gunu's family, friends, and fans. The venue wrote in a statement, which was shared on Instagram Monday by The Shade Room. Bliss, went, Bliss was contacted by a local funeral home to rent out our venue for Gunu's homegoing celebration. Bliss was never made aware of what would transpire. I don't believe that. We sincerely apologize to all those who may be upset or offended. The venue continued. Please keep Gunu's family and friends in your prayers at this difficult time. The statement was was posted amid trending Twitter footage that reportedly showed the slain rapper apparently propped up on stage at Bliss Nightclub while mourners raved around him like an Irish wave. The hip hopper's course corpse oh, was decked out was decked out in a hoodie a blinged out watch and a crown a source who attended the public viewing entitled the last show confirmed that there was a 40 dollar cover charge to enter the venue the shade room wrote in a prior post damn first of all what in the hell are we doing in our community where we are paying to go see a dead person and now we're making it a spectacle? And let me say something else to you, Darby. God rest his soul. They couldn't pull his pants up. They couldn't fasten his belt. Did he have to sag even in death? Even in death. I mean, does did he really have to go out like that? Did he really have to enter wherever he's going? 
with his pants sagging? <laughs> so, Jeff, I don't know if the world has gotten this bad or if we're just old. Because <laughs> it's bad. It's bad. I, I, this is one of the most outrageous things I have ever seen. I can't. There are so many things wrong with this. If y'all have seen that video of these people dancing around the corpse of this dead man, it and it's, and, and it's hot and he's melting. Oh my god! And he's did you see his mouth? He was twenty four years old. It was already a tragedy. Look at this fool. It was already a. It was already a tragedy that he died in the first place being 24 years old and getting shot. Oh, but God. then, but then you want to make a spectacle out of it on top of that. That is the most ridiculous, outrageous thing I, I think I've The man seen. is sagging and he did, man. They couldn't pull his pants up. They got designer clothes on him. They got, they put, they put jewelry on him. They put like, and then probably Like he was up. at the club. I told him he was missing right. with some 1800. I'm I'm sitting there like, and then they said when they said this this was the home going service. This was his funeral. The preacher. Where was the preacher at? The preacher was the DJ. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! What have what have this culture come to? It's um, embarrassing, man. It's embarrassing because then we'd be the first ones to get mad when people talk about us. But it's this this is embarrassing. Well, you know what, Darby O? You know who I blame? Who? I blame the Republicans for this one, man, for real. <laughs> <laughs> Democrats can't take it. <laughs> the Democrat, <laughs> hey, take a page out of from the GOP. Deny everything. <laughs> you know, on, uh, hey, on this, on, so, you know, I'm a, we're gonna come back and talk about a little bit a little bit more later in the show. I do want to talk about that guy down in uh, that that <laughs> that representative down in in uh, North Carolina, uh, the orgy guy. So I want to talk a little bit about oh, him Lord. too. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a lot of news going on, man. Listen, we'll be right back. <laughs> Have you ever wondered what really goes on behind the scenes in the entertainment industry? Join me, Victoria Henley from Cycle 19 of America's Next Top Model for an inside look at fashion shows, concerts, and a wide variety of events throughout the United States, featuring exclusive and insightful interviews with both seasoned and up-and-coming artists. Listen in and subscribe to Backstage Pass with Victoria, an FCB radio podcast on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Brown Show. What's going on? We're back. We're back. Oh, my God. What a day of hot topics. So I just want to say again, Darvio, I would never let you go out like that, man. We will give you an honorable service. Make Thank sure you, you cool. Thank you. You will, you, you will have on suits, on, on a suit and whatever your <laughs> and favorite shoes are. <laughs> and the suit pants won't be sagging. Uh, it will not and I would be not sagging. let you. If you go out before me, I would not let you go out like that either. Yeah, man. That's crazy, man. Listen. <laughs> I got a question for you, though, Jeff, that I too. saw on Instagram. I just want to, I just, I just, I'm just curious. Uh, there was a question 
that was asked in one of these, uh, you know, one of those meme videos. If somebody came to you and said, I'll give you $10 million to snitch on your family, would you do it? Ooh. $10 million. $10 million. Cash mm. money. Yeah, I would do it. <laughs> <laughs> Take one for the team, man. When you get out, we got you. I got yeah. you. <laughs> Take one for the team. I don't believe in stitching, but in this case, stitch. Going down. <laughs> so, so don't break the law in front of me. <laughs> I tell well, you, coming. I leave. Yeah, don't break no law in front of me. I've been to jail, <laughs> so I understand. That's the other part about snitching, because I, you know, I went to prison, and people, somebody told on me, so I get it, and I didn't get no money, and they didn't either. Right. But in this case, it's ten million. That's why I would. That's why I would ask it, you because it, it I, could I change. Curious. It could ten million can 10 change million. everything. Yeah. You can't yep. even be bad. You should want to go do the time. <laughs> like I got you when you get up. Yeah, you, if you got if you get 10 years, think about it like this. You got a million dollars, a million five, but whatever. I, I'm gonna put two million aside for you when you get home. So that way you straight think about it. Politicians do it all the time. Corporate people do it all the time. Think about it. Jimmy Haslam. When flying, uh, 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 what's that? Uh, flying J pilot, what's that? Uh, yeah, pilot, flying J, yeah, yeah, pilot, yeah, yeah. Remember when they got investigated? Yep, Jimmy hasn't been going to jail, but a lot of his executive did, and I bet mm -hmm. you they good now. Guess what? It happens like that, man. So, shoot, 10 million. I gotta get, I gotta get a deposit first. Can't just, <laughs> I can't just give up. I can't, you know, you gotta give me like, you gotta give me like five million. I gotta walk up away front. with something. Yeah, right. Cause I ain't gonna just tell them, you know what I'm saying? So you gotta give me something up front. You gotta, I gotta have some type of, and I need a cash. Big bills. <laughs> or you can give me, a, you know what I'm saying? I want a cash, or you can give me a cashier's check. Cashier's check or cash. That's that's the only way I'm taking. It's the only way I'm snitching. <laughs> and I got you. Got it. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, so wow, DC, y'all out there wilding, man. Mm, mm, mm. But anyway, I want to talk about uh this guy, uh 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 um Madison Costa. <laughs> I know the story. Hey man, <laughs> you know, I wanted to talk to you about this because I know your belief, your your idea. But one thing I do respect about you, you are for for uh, our culture, the black culture. I do respect that about you. I don't see that a lot in that party, but one thing about you, I will say you are for our community, man. You do a lot of work in the community. You, you, you're very involved. When he came out with that, what, did, what was your first thoughts? So um, I got a couple of thoughts. And I mean, and for the record, you know, uh, first of all, I appreciate what you said. And you know, you know, I'm not really, I have my belief system, but I'm not really a big party person because right. I right. hate everybody. <laughs> right, right. But, right. Uh, you do, you do. You yeah. do. You do. But, but if you had um, your choice, if you had your choice, you, you know, you preferably may go that, go right rather than left. I mean, that's all I'm saying. 
but I in voted something. for Demo- but I voted for Democrats too. So it just depends on it depends on who the, yeah, the I candidate mean, I, is. Yeah, I voted for Republican and, too. I voted right. for so Bush. Just, right. just so you know, on the record. Right. Maybe, so it just maybe it just I should. It just depends on the on the candidate. I don't but, know if I should have voted for Bush, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving past that. Uh, so, like I said, it just depends on the candidate for me. But yeah. when I when I saw that, I mean, I've been around politicians. I ain't never seen nothing like that. Like what they he was saying, sniffing cocaine and having. Yeah, I ain't never seen. I I will say this. I will say this. I've not seen that. I have heard of that. Not the orgy part, but the cocaine part. I have heard of that. So I will I will say that. I'm not gonna say no name. So I'm not gonna so, say which party. So you I, so you, so you can't confirm. So you can't confirm that 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 some of those activities are true. Well, all I can all I can I can't confirm nothing. I just know what I've been told. You can't confirm or deny. Right. I can't confirm or deny. But the point that I was that I was getting was, ready to make on was, that was Senator Mitch McConnell at any of these parties. No, not that I'm moving. <laughs> you stupid. But the point that I'm that I'm making is, in my experience with DC, Republican or Democrat, I just view DC as Hollywood for nerds. Like everything that you, everything yeah. that you associate, like all the crazy stuff that they do in Hollywood. Yeah, in the political world, is is very similar. So mm-hmm. I I don't know about the orgy stuff. I ain't heard nothing about that. But nothing would surprise me. Hey man, I knew he wasn't lying. Cause they, cause hey, here, let me say something. These, 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 a lot of these Trump people that supported Donald Trump, and I know a lot of this stuff is for them to stay in and 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 they keep their base happy, right? And a lot of them maybe don't even support Trump, but I guess it's a front. I, I, let's just say that. All right, I'm gonna be fair on it. Nobody says anything when it came to Trump, but. When this man said that they was having orgies and stiff and cocaine, man, I ain't never seen a Republican stand up. They even got a part bipartisan bill passed, man. That's how bad it was. Okay. So, <laughs> they finally passed a hundred year bill from, from Emmett Till. Emmett Till, <laughs> the Emmett Till, congratulations mm-hmm. to, to the that government Tim, for that, being able to. That Tim, that Tim Scott wrote, by the way. So, shout out to Tim. You know. Congratulations to to the government, you know, both the Republicans for that. Hey, but they hey they came out with that, man. They like, <laughs> hey, yeah, we hey, we don't do that. We're doing this. <laughs> 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 hey man, I couldn't stop laughing when I read the article. I'm like, I'm like, that's what y'all doing. Cutting taxes right. for the rich and having orgies, huh? That's how y'all celebrate. Huh? <laughs> so I'm not. I, I, like I said, that that I've never heard that before. Um, the cocaine thing, though, to be honest, I have heard that before. Wow! But you know what? That's probably why. That's probably why those the the politicians, not just Republicans, Democrats are like. That's probably why they be so the way they be, man. They they might what they, you know what they, they might be, yeah high nose <laughs> burning. <laughs> they got an itch. Scratching, <laughs> you know. <laughs> can't wait to get out of. Hey, can't wait to get out of session. Man, what? <laughs> man, you know, man, listen. So I don't, I don't know about all that stuff, but I can, I can imagine. DC is a, DC is a wild place. 
I just <laughs> DC might DC DC might be might be Las Vegas on the low. Yeah, just with politicians. Yeah, with politicians. <laughs> with politicians. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Think about it for real. Like, if you ever notice, like the cities that the RNC and the DNC go to, you ever notice how uh, a lot of the news reports and how a lot of the police are like they getting ready for an uptick in prostitution when those events come to their city. Who's paying for prostitution? Right, you heard it here first. You know what I'm saying? By, so by, I'm, by, I'm, hey, by the kingpin. You heard it here first. <laughs> I'm so not. You looking look, for a good time? Going. Hey, listen, if you look for a good time, go to an RNC convention. You won't go or to the DNC. <laughs> <laughs> or the DNC. Get you, get you some, hey, you how you look? Hey, you can blow some smoke. You can blow some steam. <laughs> <laughs> and get some politics done <laughs> at the same time. It's time to get out of here, man. Wrap this thing up. Yeah. What did you learn today, man? I learned that you want your home coming. You want your home going to be a party. Yeah, but what I also learned today is. You want yours to be a party too, but we hey, but we don't want to be standing up there. So listen. <laughs> <laughs> hey, make sure you guys. <laughs> and we don't want to be melting away at the same oh, time. Lord have mercy. Hey, listen. Yeah, man. That's just crazy. You gotta watch the video. Go on Darville's Twitter. Uh, Darville, give me your hand yeah. real quick. At D the King fan. It's it's right there. I tweeted it. Yeah. Out. Yeah, and I'll and go to uh, official Jeff Brown show page. I'll be posting the video as well, so you can check it, look at it. Uh, also, go subscribe on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts on your favorite listening device. Hey, listen, it's been another exciting episode of the Jeff Brown Show. See you till next week. Bye. FCB Radio Network, first class broadcasting worldwide. Home. They say it's where the heart is. They also say it's wherever you make it. They don't say it's where you unload your stuff, get tired halfway through unpacking, use some boxes as furniture, realize your oven mitts in a box that doubles as a nightstand, don't want to buy a new nightstand, and use a towel as an oven mitt instead. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on renters and car insurance. Easier than grabbing a piping hot pan with a towel that's a bit too thin and trying to quickly get it to the counter. Ooh, hot, 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 hot. Today's episode is brought to you by Patreon. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash joshuavelas and become a $2 backer today and get early access to the new episodes. I'll be leaving a link in the description down below, but for now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Augment Experience Podcast. I'm your host, as usual, Joshua Velas. I'm a student, musician, and a gamer at heart. Join me as I sit down every week to talk about all the latest news in the technology, business, and video game world. I hope you guys enjoy.
All right, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My name is Joshua Bellis. I am your host as usual. And obviously, welcome back to the show. Today's episode 213 of the show. And before we get started, you know, we're going to do a house cleaner quick around here because it only makes sense that we do it. So let's just get on with the house cleaning. I do want to say thank you guys for coming back and listening. It does mean a lot to me. You guys constantly take time out your days to download these episodes, to share these episodes, to constantly keep letting me know how you feel, whether you like my stupid face or not. Because, hey, we're doing a video version this week. What a beautiful thing. So you get to see my face. As you guys can clearly tell, I am growing out my beard even more now. And I don't know, like, let me know what you guys think in the comments down below. Do you guys like the beard? You know, do you think it fits me a little bit better? Do you think it suits a little bit more of a mature look, especially because I'm getting older? Like, I'm crying on the inside that I'm getting older. But that is how the cookie crumbles, my friends. I know it kind of sounds stupid. <laughs> like, I know I'm barely just 22. And it's just, man, I'm barely 22 and I already feel like I'm 40. But yeah gee uh, yeah but we'll deal with that another time <laughs> but thank you guys so much for your time i really appreciate you guys constantly keep coming back and you keep downloading these episodes you keep sharing them you constantly keep voting on the topics you guys keep choosing the topics since i open it up to you guys to you know choose what i can talk about also thank you to the patreon backers as well for supporting the show you guys are greatly appreciated i love you guys all to death but today, my dear listeners and viewers, if you're listening to this on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, where we like to listen to your podcast, or you're joining us on the YouTube version of the show, where you get to see my lovely and beautiful face, even though probably some of you want to punch me in said face. But what are we talking about today? I think it's kind of interesting because, well, I think this sucker might give it away a little bit what we might be talking about today. And no, before somebody says, holy crap, did you get a PS5? No, I did not get a PS5. I just have a PS5 controller just to play on my PC because my hand issues are uh, slightly getting worse. And it this controller just makes it a little bit easier on my hands. But we're essentially talking about the PlayStation, but not the console, more of the software and the services or the services side of the PlayStation, which we're essentially talking about the new PS Plus tiers. And to me, this has been a very interesting topic. It has sparked tons of debate ever since it was announced, the new tiers, whether it be the pricing scheme, whether it be some specific things mentioned in said tiers about what they offer, what they don't offer. And we're going to talk about those things a little bit because I feel like it's a very important conversation Especially when it comes to the idea of handling the PS3 era. And this has always been a very controversial topic when it comes to how Sony has handled the PS3, when it comes to, you know, legacy of the PS3, the backwards compatibility or the lack of backwards compatibility with the PS3 era. And it only makes sense that this conversation pops up again the second we get a PlayStation Plus refresh and, well, the PS3 is mentioned in those tiers, but let's talk about the tiers real quick. Let's break them down, price scheme, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So the new PS Plus tiers is broken down into three new tiers. And the thing that we should keep in mind with all of this, I don't necessarily consider the new tiers a competitor to Game Pass. I think the target audience that they're trying to reach is different, especially with the different value propositions that come with each thing. You know, Game Pass has its own value proposition, while the new PS Plus tiers has their own value propositions. When we talk about the new tiers, we have to acknowledge what each tier represents. We have the essential tier, which is essentially just your normal PS Plus, well, your normal just PS Plus tier. That's all it really is, just $60 a year. You can pay the monthly fee overall people are going to say go for the yearly and that just has your usual you know standard benefits that usually come with ps plus 
then we bump up to extra and this is where we start to see some very interesting things where they start to include games that can be downloaded and cloud streamed we're gonna have to keep those words in mind so keep them in mind both ps4 and ps5 games so essentially that gets added to the tier and with the ps you know bump up from the essentials so the ps plus essentials the basic for 60 dollars a year the extra is a hundred dollars a year and then we bump up to the premium tier where essentially you get the same benefits of the extra tier just with more stuff and the main stuff that's included is interesting to say the least essentially what they add is native downloads and cloud streamings of ps1 ps2 and psp games but they also mentioned that ps3 is included only through cloud streaming and that would end up running you about 120 dollars a year yearly for me i get that the debate of the ps3 and how sony has handled it how sony has treated the ps3 era let's be real can be argued pretty piss poor if we're just being objectively honest here it's not that they want to forget about it that's not essential. that's not what they're doing the problem is the architecture of the ps3 has caused many issues and it's been well documented it's like i've seen so many conversations that there i've seen debates saying that well they're having a hard time doing it it just it's not realistic or feasible that they're can get an emulation running of a ps3 emulation running on a ps5 there's people that have made clear debates that it's easily possible for sony to make an emulation of the ps3 on running on the ps5 the problem is they just don't want to do it and they feel that cloud streaming is the better option and for me i do agree with the debate that it is possible to do it i just don't think sony's putting in the effort to do it i think they just is i wouldn't say it's not that they don't care i'm not gonna say that i just don't think they see the value in doing it they probably see more value in doing the cloud streaming it's just easier simpler you know just running it through data centers the problem that people have with the ps3 cloud streaming as we've seen with ps now because that's essentially what this new ps plus subscription is doing is merging ps plus with ps now is we're essentially getting the same cloud streaming that's already on ps now well now and the problem with the cloud streaming is that it has really bad latency the visual quality is just absolutely terrible and this is why people have been clamoring for sony to do proper emulation especially with given the hardware of the ps5 they don't see why it's impossible or sony just isn't trying when they have a very capable console of running these things you know that you could emulate it especially because people have made the joke they're like my brother in christ you made the damn system what do you mean you can't emulate it which i think it's always been a very interesting debate the fact that you know we've seen this with nintendo where people have joked with nintendo like bro how is it possible that the company that made the game that made the console that that game was played on can't even do an emulator right and homies were that have no affiliation no access to the source code did a much better job at emulating than nintendo themselves when it came to dealing with like say the ocarina of time and some other n64 games because nintendo again is kind of in the same boat as sony where emulation they kind of hate it and they kind of don't want to deal with it i do at least respect microsoft in that sense of putting an emphasis on backwards compatibility obviously yes we have to acknowledge that backwards compatibility is not necessarily a big feature now going forward that there won't be more games added to it due to licensing agreements and things like that it just causes some legal issues if we're just being honest here now for me i think the pricing 
is fair. I think the better value, as many people have probably stated, is the extra tier is the most realistic and I think better value of the two. I think premium, the fact that we don't have any information regarding what PS1 games, what PS2 games, what PSP games, what PS3 games, even though the PS3 games, people are assuming that whatever's on PS now is just the same ones we're going to get. And at the same time, we also think about like which PS1, PS2, PSP games are going to be downloadable, which games are going to be only cloud streamed. Because to me, it kind of screams a little bit of a red flag. The fact that we don't know what games, because the service doesn't come out until starting in June when it gets rolled out, say in Asia, then the United States and then other countries. To me, I get it. It made sense that Sony was going to do something like this. Like it's been rumored for a while now that Sony was going to do a refresh because they want a competitor to Game Pass. It just makes logical sense given how Game Pass has been successful, how the numbers are growing, how you know it's becoming the best value in gaming if you want to say that. I know it's a cheesy tagline, but they have a point when they say it. They're not just saying it just to say it. They're saying it because it actually is one of the better values in gaming. The fact that you get access to Microsoft's first party games day one on a service without having to buy them. So that means you can try them out. And if you like them, hey, you probably want to go out and buy it if you actually tried it out for a month. And you know, you pay a monthly fee, you get to try them out and you get access to them day one. So you don't have to go wait in line to play the game. You could just instantly start downloading it and boom, start playing it right then and there. And if you like it, you're probably going to go buy it physically. I'm just being honest. And if you don't like it, hey, you're just like, hey, I tried this game out, didn't like it. Well, delete, move on. That's essentially how people view Game Pass. And at the same time, the fact that it has access to some good third-party games as well. The fact that there's going to be early releases. The fact that, to me, it doesn't surprise me, as I've mentioned this before, that Sony was going to do this. I don't think it caught anybody off guard that Sony was going to do something like this. That they wanted a competitor to Game Pass. It just makes logical sense that they were going to do this. You'd be kind of stupid to say that they weren't going to do this when they had all the reasons in the world to do this. They wanted a piece of that pie because they realized like, hey, maybe going forward, subscriptions are going to be the way. The future of gaming is subscription-based rather than physical sales because I'm worried about that, especially this is the other this is the other thing that worries me too, is especially the whole idea of streaming. Yes, I get it. They have these big data centers that, you know, they make custom chips to run these data centers. It just still goes to show that cloud streaming still has a far, far way to go before we can even consider this the next standard of gaming, that home consoles are dead, that streaming on the cloud will be the future. And the prime reality of this is latency, the you know, latency, visual quality. It still hasn't really improved so much. It still doesn't make things better. It doesn't make people feel comfortable going into this cloud streaming direction. There's a reason why Nintendo got so much backlash when they how they handled Kingdom Hearts for the fact that they put some of the biggest kingdom hearts games and they're cloud streamed even though they ran on consoles that were far weaker than the switch and the fact that the switch can't run these games natively let's be real homie we all know what it was they were just kind of lazy i know that kind of sounds bad i'm just being honest with you the fact that the some of the older kingdom hearts games ran on weaker hardware than the switch yeah you had no excuse on why you couldn't put these things on the switch like actually native like instead of cloud streaming them just being honest here for me, the concern is still with the PS3 games, especially with the fact that there's a lot of PS3 games that are not able to be, you know, that haven't been pushed over to the even the PS4 or even currently the PS5. The fact that a lot of these games cannot be bought and they, you know, that's the concern that people have too is like, 
why can't I just buy games that I like? Like if there's a PS3 game I like playing, why can't I just buy this instead of, or is it only just gonna be locked to streaming it? And this is where some people have issues with the service is due to the fact that, you know, how's it gonna look? How's it gonna run? At the same time, are we eventually say maybe gonna get an update to it again? Like maybe like another update where they say, hey, we actually have a PS3 emulator running. And the same thing goes with like the PS1, PS2 and PSP games. like which ones are going to be downloadable like that you can actually download and play them and they're not cloud versions or which ones are going to be the cloud version there's going to be like an 80 20 split like 80 percent being cloud and 20 percent being download you know like what is going to be the the split like what are we going to see and at the same time at 120 dollars a year it's kind of rough homie like yeah you're pushing it you know like you're definitely pushing it and at least yeah if i did the math correct that's yeah, I think it should be 120. I might be wrong, but that's the last time I saw it. I saw 120. I don't have my phone on me, so I can't really check, which I know that kind of sounds bad, but it's going to be interesting. To be honest, I don't see it as a competitor to Game Pass. I think Game Pass, especially this is the main thing, too, that people were also mad about was the fact that ps5 games or playstation exclusives will not be day one on the new service or specifically the premium tier i think that would have made a little bit of logical sense especially if you want to push people up to that premium echelon to put the ps exclusives on there day one i get it i understand that sony is like look this hurts our business model we want people to buy these games because if you know they buy these games they're able to fund our projects we can keep making these because obviously the price of development of these first party exclusives are starting to get more and more expensive so sony obviously wants to get as much money as i can out of you to be honest i think it was kind of stupid not to do the ps1 exclusive like i understand i I understand how they work over there at sony they're obviously those homies are crunching numbers hard they're really trying to think about every possible scenario of how they can milk you suckers dry prime example they kind of got 60 bucks out of me for this damn controller but it's one of those things where I think it would have been a good idea, especially with the fact that knowing that your competition and some people are like, well, what about the quality of those first party exclusives? Like they're clearly not as good. And at the same time, if we're comparing companies who got, you know, more money in the bank, clearly Microsoft has more money than Sony. They obviously can take a loss while doing this. Like they, the thing with the Xbox brand is that, yes, they also have one of the largest companies in the world backing them and funding them and sony well is not as well yes they are big they ain't microsoft levels of big with how much cash they got especially the fact that they just bought activision blizzard for well like 70 70 billion dollars in cash 70 80 billion dollars in cash like that wasn't like stocks like no homies they gave them straight cash they gave them bat benjamins stacks racks of benjamins so this is the type of company we're dealing with here. Obviously, they can take a loss. So it makes sense why they're okay with putting the first party games on there. They won since, hey, you know, they're okay with taking a loss at, you know, with the hope and expectation that eventually it'll generate profit. That's the hope and expectation with Game Pass that eventually it will start generating a net profit for Microsoft. And well, then they'll just hit the ground running. With Sony, they just don't feel comfortable and they're just not really at that point where it makes logical sense to do that. For me, I think the PS3 emulation should have happened. I think if there was a time that Sony would have done it, this would have been the best time to do it. I think Sony really dropped the ball when it comes to 
mishandling. And I understand that the PS3 architecture is different. I understand that it was, you know, when they transitioned from the PS3 to the PS4, that was one of the debates that they had, which was, we understand that changing the architecture is going to, it's going to cost us something. And in this case, it was the backwards compatibility with the PS3, but they were okay with it because, well, we saw how good the PS4 sold. It just sucks that Sony keeps saying that, look, we just can't figure it out. And a lot of people are like, well, what do you mean you can't figure it out? You made the damn thing. What do you mean you can't figure this out? Like, you can't mean that you can't tell me that homies that, you know, just do stuff on their computer and their free time were able to figure this out. But the company that has a source code made the original console, knows everything about the console, has the blueprint schematics, everything. Can't figure out how to emulate this damn thing. Well, homies in their in their bedrooms can figure this out. Like, come on, bro come on don't give me this crap sony knows they can do it they just don't want to do it and it sucks because we just have to deal with it but at the end of the day i think the new tiers are very interesting i think it just comes down to seeing what games they put like we really have to see what did they put because it's easy to say oh over 700 games over 300 partners are partnering with us to put games on this service like okay that's all fine and dandy what games did you put like if you put a bunch of trash on there like it don't matter how many games you got if most of them are doo doo da cheeks you got them like it doesn't matter at the end of the day like if these games are trash bro they're trash like it don't matter <laughs> but i'm interested to see how this turns out i've you know i've said this a little bit too like like it's kind of funny i have the ps5 controller so whenever if i ever am able to get my hands on a ps5 the only reason i would would be to play final fantasy 7 remake well, not just part one, but eventually once part two comes out, I still would wait until they make the master's collection, which would be like part one and two together. That would be the one that I'd buy, especially if they put them on one disc. Ooh, ooh, you can bet your sweet butt cheeks on buying that. Hell yeah. I'm going to be like, just take my money, bro. Just take my money. And I got another controller now. So, you know, I'll have two. But at the end, of the day, let me know. Do you guys have a PS5? What do you guys think of the new tiers? Do you feel like yay, nay, like? Sony dropped the ball. You think Microsoft is still killing it with Game Pass? Do you think Game Pass is even a good value to begin with? Let me know what you guys think in the comments down below or just hit me up on my social medias because you guys seem to do that every time I post an episode and whether you like them or not, you guys will obviously let me know because I check my messages. But let me know what you guys think. Thank you guys again for just taking time every day to listen to this episode, to watch this episode. It really just it really just means a lot to me that you guys constantly make time to just let me talk. Let me, you know, ramble. I wouldn't say ramble, but at least have an insightful conversation about these things, whether it be trends in technology, business, the video game industry, especially the real talks. Like a lot of you have reached out to me and told me you felt very encouraged by a lot of the slice of life episodes and with just giving some advice with dealing with certain things that I've been through, just things that people just go through in general on an everyday basis. To be honest, I've been incredibly encouraged and humbled by it to me. Thank you guys so much for that. I really do appreciate it because I do this not only because I love doing what I'm doing when it comes to doing the show, but at the same time, I love interacting with people. I love being able to help people to be able to share stories with people to get to understand people where they're coming from with their different stories. Cause I've always felt that the best way to get to know somebody is when you share stories. It's when you, that's when you really get to know somebody and whether those stories be talking about video games, whether it be talking about tech, whether it be talking about business trends or just talking about life and doing life together. To me, all this is fun. All this is rewarding. And I couldn't do this without you guys. But as always, guys, I love you guys to death. I hope you guys have a wonderful week and weekend. 
please guys be safe. Don't do anything dumb. The world is still a weird place out there. So let's just continue to be kind, courteous, and take care of those around us. And as always, guys, don't do anything dumb. I love you guys to death. I hope you guys have yourselves a wonderful weekend and week. Keep staying awesome, guys. If you're in college, keep crushing it, guys. We're almost at the very end of the semester. Just keep pushing. If you, you know, if you're working a nine to five, you know, keep working hard. You know, I wouldn't say try to keep a smile on your face while working, but try to be a little bit more hopeful and optimistic and realize that, hey, everything you're doing now has a purpose. Everything you're doing has a re like there's a reason why you're doing what you're doing. Everything has a purpose. There's everything we I would say every place that we are placed in, there's always a constant opportunity to help somebody to make somebody's day, whether it be a cashier, whether it be a CEO of a company, your responsibilities, while different at the same time, that doesn't mean that you can't have an impact on somebody's life. No matter you're a cashier or you're waiting tables or you're the CEO or an owner of a business, you can ha always have an impact on somebody's life. So that's why it's just a matter of perspective, you know, and being grateful for everything that we have and not being bitter about what we don't have. But as always, guys, be safe. Love you guys to death. And I will see you guys next week. Bye, guys. Hey there. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your day and listening to today's episode. If you're interested in supporting the show, whether it be financially, clicking the follow button, or just sharing the episode, it all works for me, guys. Thank you guys so much for your time, and I love you guys to death.